You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, Nathan Gilmore, Danny Anderson, and Michael Farmer. When my mind is all fluttered from living day to day, your music's like the river I can gently float away. When I'm deep in disappointment and I cannot face the night, music picks me up and takes me closer to the light. Mother country music, let your sad songs roll. You nurtured me in childhood, you're ailing for my soul. Mother country music, let the guitars roll on. There's a refuge from our troubles. Hi, and welcome to episode 109 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. I am an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Joining me today is, well, I may as well just introduce you both at once because you have the same position at the same school. Assistant professors of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia, Dr. Nathan Gilmore. How are you, Nathan? I'm doing pretty well this morning, Michael. And Dr. Danny Anderson. Hi there. Thanks for having me back. Sure thing. We'll have you back for another few months at least. Yeah, you're actually not allowed to leave for a while. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we don't have any listener feedback because uh, the ep- the last episode went up, I don't know, half an hour ago. I'm not even sure if it's on iTunes yet. Uh, h- however, we do have, I, I just do, I do want to point everybody's attention back to our other podcast, Christian Humanist Profiles, that uh, its first episode would have went live last week, as you're hearing this now, and uh, it, it is available on iTunes. So if you just search for Christian Humanist Profiles, you can download it. We have a couple more, hopefully, um, that will be recorded and released before too long, so that... Uh, that podcast keeps on a going, right? But just to be clear, this one is not going to have a regular release schedule like the North, like the flagship podcast does. Uh, but it's going to be as we have time to read and interview and d- record and do those sorts of things, right? And um, as for the Christian feminist podcast, which, despite my saying that's not what it was going to be called, is apparently what it's going to be called. Oh, is um, it really? <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> um, that is coming. That, that has not been recorded yet. They're still working out a time. So that, that'll be eventually, and we will certainly let you know, both on the Facebook feed and on here. Oh, great. So they're actually down to scheduling a time to record. Yeah, but because they have a lot of people who kind of float in and out or a different format than we are, I think it's going to be harder for them to, to figure out when to do it. Oh, that's fine. I'm, I'm just excited to hear it, honestly. I am, too. I am, too. Um, uh, and I hope uh, our listeners are, at least some of them. Okay, so our topic for today is country music, which is uh, a product of Danny being here, because Danny, unlike David and unlike Nathan, uh, actually likes country music, as do I. So I said, well, now now's the time to talk about this. So, uh, yeah, next few months, I imagine you're going to hear a lot of things that wouldn't have happened with a different uh, lineup. Right, and I'll be playing the role of Michael Farmer. Yeah. <laughs> He used to make fun of me for not saying much. Soon you'll know why. <laughs> uh, so let's begin the way we used to begin episodes, by talking about uh, ourselves, uh, our, our personal histories and experiences with country music. Did you guys grow up listening to it? Did you like it when you were a kid? What do you think of it now? How has your relationship changed? Anything like that. Uh, Danny, let's start with you. 
Sure. Uh, I did actually. My, I'm, I think said last week from Cleveland, Ohio, but uh, I'm part of that uh, uh, migration. My parents moved from West Virginia, uh, along with many people uh, from Kentucky and West Virginia to northern industrial cities. They brought their music with them. And so I uh, basically uh, grew up listening to country music because that's what was played in the household. And this was very kind of old school country music. It was Johnny Cash and Buck Owens and that sort of thing. Um, and as I was growing up, that's I would listen to country radio. And it happened to be the heyday of the kind of neo-traditionalist uh, movement with people like Dwight Yoakam, uh, Rodney Crowell, Randy Travis, and some really terrific um, uh well, we'll, we'll introduce the term purists uh, later on in the show, but uh, this was sort of a heyday for that. And so that's kind of the uh, strain of country music that has always spoken to me. Now, as I, as I got older, I, I sort of drifted off and uh, discovered punk and, and things like that on my own uh, and have never kind of lost my love of those things either. But uh, as I've gotten older now, I've kind of returned a bit to, uh, or quite a bit actually, to country music and its kind of pure strains. Nathan, what about you? Well, I actually wasn't all that aware of country music growing up as a kid. My first real, I guess you'd say, awareness of it was actually very, very negative. Uh, if you, if listeners you don't know, uh, in the late 80s and early 90s, I don't know if that's still the case because I've been living in the South for 18 years, but back then, uh, Central Indiana was a hotbed for Ku Klux Klan activity, far more so than the South was. Uh, and... My first real exposure to country music was at a junior varsity football game uh, at which some guys rolled their pickup truck along the fence line of the football game while we were playing a team from Indianapolis, waving a Confederate flag, shouting racial slurs, and blasting Garth Brooks. Uh, so that kind of set my plate for how I thought about country music for a good long time. I imagine so. Uh, so, you know, I, I wouldn't touch the stuff in high school. Uh, now, once I got over to college, uh, I went to college in East Tennessee, the stomping grounds of the Carter family, which you'll hear about here directly. Uh, so I, I started to, to grow to appreciate cats like Johnny Cash and Willie Nelson. Uh, and really, my sort of turnaround on country music, uh, and this is going to show me as, a, as an incorrigible hipster, Michael, so you can go ahead and get ready to mock me here, uh, was actually when... Uh, the Dixie Chicks fell from grace uh, when they had the audacity, I tell you, the temerity to criticize George W. Bush from on stage during a concert. How dare uh, and, and the country world turned on them. Uh, that's about the time I started downloading some of their songs and kind of realized, hey, they kind of sound good. They've got one uh, of the so... very best anti-war songs, uh, Traveling Soldier. I mean, they, they didn't write, but that, that's from that's from the album that got shunted off of country radio, and it's, it's a shame because that's a really excellent song. So at any rate, in the 10 years since that happened, I've actually, you know, sort of rediscovered some of that stuff. Uh, but, I mean, it, it still remains something I don't listen to all that much. So uh, as Michael noted at the beginning, you know, I'm going to be sort of a, a quiet presence on today's episode, although I will make every attempt to talk some about what I don't know much about. 
I didn't uh, grow up really listening to music at all, although my first uh, musical memory is of some Willie Nelson Christmas song or another. <laughs> um, and I, I uh, as I got into, as I became a teenager, I, I didn't like country music. Uh, it seemed cornpone and hillbilly and uh, silly and retrogressive and all, all the other stuff people think of country music as. And then uh, what what brought me over was the... Uh, the alternative country scene in the in the mid to late 90s and I, I started with a band that I, I think is little remembered called uh, Vigilantes of Love but I moved on and, and listened to the Jayhawks <laughs> and Sunvolt and uh, Wilco and people like that and, and, and from there I went back to the, the older stuff so uh, I, I I don't know I, I, I listen to a lot of different kinds of music now if you go back and listen a couple of years ago I did a top 20 songs you'll hear maybe about a third of those are country inflected but uh, very little of them are pop radio country anyway. So uh, that's my that's my history. So it sounds like we're at least united on the uh, outlaw guys. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Who's not? Yeah, yeah. Every now and then you right. meet somebody who doesn't like Willie Nelson or Johnny Cash, but right. th- those people aren't worth talking to. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice shibboleth. Well, I think that's pronounced sibboleth. Oh, sorry. <laughs> wow! Sorry, that's Nathan's joke. He did it. He did it on a different episode. I couldn't help. I, now, yeah, anytime you, I hear that word, you really did just steal my joke, Michael. I... <laughs> Sorry. Hey, do, I feel do embarrassed you, for bringing it up. Do, do you want me to? Uh, do you want me to stop for, uh, talking for a second and then you can say it? No, no. Just, just cite your sources, man. Just cite your sources, <laughs> which I did immediately. Uh, so. Country is a traditionalist genre of music, it, it, much more so, I would say, than, than rock or, uh, oh, I don't know, dance or, or whatever. I mean, it, it is something much more obviously indebted to its past. But it goes without saying that country radio today doesn't really sound much like what country sounded like in when it first started in the 20s and 30s. We're going to talk about the modern stuff, and we'll talk about the notion of real country later on, but let's go add Fontes for a moment. Danny, what can you tell us about the roots of country music? What does it come out of, and what social and artistic conditions lead to its development? Sure. Um, well, this is I have to pre- preface this with my influence of Lionel Trilling, and, and uh, I'm very kind of suspicious of having these kind of monolithic ideas of culture, <clears throat> where this sort of clearly identifiable forces that are kind of homogeneic and but because I think it's much more of a, a a messy negotiation of kind of dialectical forces going on and and believe it or not country music though Nathan is right it is largely a a white thing um um it is much more sort of complicated than that in its roots um and I mean and I think a lot of it has to do not only with sort of artistic uh aesthetic influences but also with uh um issues of poverty and class and that's sort of transcend race. And so the, the genesis of country music, I mean, has its roots in Irish immigrants and Scottish immigrants to the Appalachian mountains, to that region of the country, bringing with them things like folk songs and, and instruments like fiddles and that sort of thing. But it's in a, a kind of social stew, if you will, with uh, other sort of poor groups, uh, African-Americans being one. Um, and we, th- we think of the banjo as being a particularly country, uh, almost exclusively country instrument, yet it was brought into the, this mix by African-Americans. And so this is uh, um, like one of the kind of places where 
different cultures are sort of negotiating uh, at once and making sort of a kind of a new thing. Um, and this all sort of comes together and forms, a, a, if you want to say, a genre of music that we think of now as called old time music. Um, and it, an interesting contemporary band, if you're uh, uh, interested in exploring this, is a, a group called the Carolina Chocolate Drops. And they are Afri African-American musicians, really great musicians, who really kind of explore this this phase of country music. They play things like jugs and and, uh, and the very kind of archaic sort of instruments. And they're very interested in old time music. And their music really does sort of point out how uh, it's more of a regional thing that it does really transcend race at its genesis, at least. Um, uh, more than we would expect, at least. I was raised in the country, that's a natural fact. Food on the table from the garden out back. Everyone working to make the land their own. Red clay cracking where the silver queen grows. Running with your cousins from yard to yard. The living was easy, but the playing was hard. Didn't have much, nothing comes for free. All you needed was your family. I am a country girl. I've been around the world. Um, but this old time music, once the recording industry sort of starts taking shape, the publishing and recording industry, um, gets transformed and repackaged, if you will, as something called hillbilly music. Um, and uh, that's kind of the predecessor of what we call country music. Um, and it's not to play the Marxist card yet again, but uh, you can't really think about this without at least considering the effect of the recording industry on the segregation of genres. And this is where sort of black music and white music gets um, separated on a kind of um, logistical and, and business end um, and, and, and takes what was a more racially diverse genre and kind of separates them into these more kind of definable things that we're talking about now. Um, but once these divisions are made and hillbilly music is sort of established, um, uh, before it's being called really country music, that comes a little bit later, um, you really have to look at people like Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family as this uh, is kind of embodying the uh, kind of year one, if you will, of country music. And so if you can think of, uh, and actually Jimmy Rogers is complicated because it's, if you listen to his music alongside kind of old time blues uh, artists, uh, you wouldn't necessarily separate them. They're, they're very not. kind of, they're very uh, similar in a lot of ways. And yet he is much more kind of recognizable as kind of really the first sort of country singer, if you, if you will. Um, and, uh, and alongside the Carter family, which brought in a much more kind of uh, uh, spiritual sort of uh, country church sort of sound to things. Um, and they recorded for many, many years and obviously um, spawned June Carter cash. And, uh, and so they're, the first family of country music in a lot of ways. I've got a home in that rock, don't you see, don't you see? I've got a home in that rock, don't you see? I've got a home in that rock, just beyond the mountain top. I need old rock of Egypt for me. But um, those two sort of artists are kind of, if you want to kind of simplify the kind of genealogy of country music, you can sort of begin with them. Um, but they did come out of something that was much more messy. Uh, and there was a process of, uh, of combining competing um, elements and competing kind of social and artistic forces um, to get to them. But that's sort of a, a basic history of its foundations. 
Just to demonstrate how close Jimmy Rogers is to the blues of the era, his Blue Yodel number seven features without comment the very distinctive trumpet playing of Louis Armstrong. <laughs> So, so I mean that those the, those two genres did, were not distinguished until somebody distinguished them, yes. which I guess is how genres work, right? Yeah, and largely I think it's the recording industry when there's markets to be defined and and sold to. Well, that's what happens to radio as well. Rock, what happens to rock radio in the '60s? Yeah. Nathan, mm-hmm. do you have anything to add? Uh no, only that uh, Carter Fold, which is you know sort of the the mothership of the Carter family. Uh, was still operative when I was in college and seminary in East Tennessee in the late 80s. Uh, and legendarily, uh, which is to say I've never actually known anyone who's seen it, but I've known people who've known people, if you know what I mean, uh, Johnny Cash would on occasion show up unannounced and play a set for the 120 people who were there. Amazing. Nice. So, uh, you know, the Carter family didn't go away, you know, after they, you know, sort of, established the roots of country music uh that establishment is still as far as i know up and running my favorite johnny cash factoid is that in the 70s there was a church in nashville to which belonged cash chris christopherson and roy orbison huh. which is enough to make you become a baptist <laughs> as far as i'm concerned yeah <laughs> Well, um, if you look very much into those roots, and Danny got into this uh, a good bit, um, but you see the degree to which country music is connected with blues and jazz. Sometimes, as with Jimmy Rogers, as with uh, Bob Wills is the the name I was trying to come up with, uh, where where it's hard to distinguish that music from other genres, but but let's try anyway. Nathan, (laughs) what can you tell us about what makes a given piece of music country as, as opposed to those other things? Uh, what is the essence of country music as distinguished from its excellence? Well, I'm going to borrow a, a page from the existentialist playbook and say that the existence of country precedes its essence. Uh, it's really something that happened and then people started defining it. Uh, and I realize that's not what Sartre was all about, but I'm using the phrase as a lead-in, so what are you going to do? Uh, really, I mean, the instrumentation of country, I mean, it almost always features a trap kit, almost always features guitars, uh, you know, it, it is usually a melodic sung sort of performance, uh, as opposed to spoken word, although obviously, uh, there are certain Johnny Cash numbers that defy that, um, really, you know, the roots that, you know, Danny and Michael have both mentioned in mountain folk songs, uh, for most people are what's most recognizably country about a song. Uh, it'll usually have uh, a main lead vocalist, a melodic, sometimes narrative, although not always, uh, vocal line. Uh, and then it is backed up by guitar, trap kit, and then some other combination of instruments, depending on what era you were in. Uh, it used to be that you could almost always count on a fiddle being in there, uh, although when you get into modern country and the and the variations that come out of the 60s and the 90s and such, there's no guarantee of that either. 
Uh, so, like I said, I mean, really, it's the vocalist that most people can recognize, uh, you know, and call something country. Um, beyond that, I mean, it, it is mostly accidents as far as I can tell. Uh, now, of course, you know, you're asking someone who listens to very little country to define that essence. Uh, Danny, am I missing something that's at the core that I need to, that we need to mention? Oh gosh. Well, uh, no, I don't think so. I, I do. I do think the spoken word is an interesting kind of genre, particularly when you look ahead in country music a bit to sort of the Nashville sound kind of, um, <laughs> this, this sort of, uh, uh, I mean, you see it in some like great George Jones, the great George Jones song. Uh, he stopped loving her today. Right. Uh, this is, uh, okay. It's got okay. A... You know, she came to see him one last time. Oh, and we all wondered if she were. And it kept running through my mind. This time, he's over her for good. He stopped loving her. And I was at the, I saw Rodney Crowell in concert last year, and he was sort of commenting on this. And, and he said that, you know, growing up listening to country music, there's a point where you start hearing sort of a choir, kind of high-pitched humming voice in the background. And that's a cue to the listener that, quote, hillbilly about to start talking. And, and so this is sort <laughs> of a... Uh, it was a very funny moment, but this was a, uh, a, it is sort of a convention later on of, of uh, a more kind of commercial version of, uh, of country music. Okay. And I'd completely forgotten that phenomenon. So thank you for that. It's interesting to me. You started with the trap set because I mean, so, so much of country up until the fifties doesn't really use a trap set. And even early Johnny Cash doesn't have. He doesn't, oh, he that's doesn't interesting. See, I, all the country I'm familiar with does. So go ahead, Michael. Uh, no, that's all I had to say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the trap set being drums, right? Is that? Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, that was actually a no-no for early Grand Old Opry. You couldn't have drums. I mean, this was sort of a uh, a later addition to country music. Oh, well, I'll be. See, I, I again, listeners, this is why <laughs> I, I came into this episode with great anxiety because I was going to say something like that. Uh, <laughs> no, no. But what you defined actually. I mean, you're defining sort of the I walk the line era of Johnny Cash, right? And that is, for many way, many people, the kind of a, a very pure form of country right. music. So, well, you know, and frankly, I mean, the, the country music of the 90s, which, you know, really I'm most familiar with. Right. I, I, would, uh, I would point to the simplicity of the song structures. Okay. That, that, I mean, country is at least stereotypically three chords, and it's probably a one, a four, and a five. Uh-huh. No, it doesn't. I, I guess it doesn't have to be that way, but but it, it is true that the more complicated country gets, the uh, the less country it, it sounds to me. The hmm. more musically complicated, if that makes sense. Uh-huh. Apparently, nobody has anything to add to that. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> like no, I said, right. Michael, I, I am the I am the visitor here. <laughs> Well, I feel like the visitor still, so I'm hesitant to talk. But no, I think you're right. Um, and and perhaps I think, Michael, this is why I found an affinity between the kind of country music I grew up listening to and the punk music that I, I, I discovered later. I mean, structurally, right. and even in the, the choice of chords, uh, they're essentially the same. And you see uh, later sort of punkish bands like Social Distortion um, completely go to country music as their source. And, and so, I mean, I think that 
there is something to be said for that that simplistic structure that I think when it does get one of the things I want to get into later is when it does get into these more complicated um, forms of it, it tends to orient itself away from kind of a uh, an outsider kind of low class uh, genre, which is I think at the heart for me of its quote unquote purity. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about that purity since you've you've invoked that word. Um, it's difficult to talk about or read about country music very long before you run into one litmus test or another. What makes something real country? Um, Danny, what can you tell us about the purity of the genre? It's it's fashionable and it's fun to make fun of the music get, that gets played on modern country radio. But the truth is, country has been mixed with pop since at least the 50s, and probably before that, depending on how you want to talk about pop. So mm-hmm. what makes country pure? And, uh, you know, are the snobs right to say that the outlaw country stars of the 70s and the alternative country stars of the 90s uh, closer to purity than Brad Paisley or Garth Brooks or Patsy Cline? Um, well, I would say that's generally true. Um, I am not a musician or a you know music scholar or anything, but from my own uh, position as kind of a consumer, uh, I think that that's true. Although, I mean, with age comes some sort of uh, canonicity, I think, when people like Patsy Cline, when you talk about them as being sort of impure, it's, it's, it's a strange thing for us to hear now because we think of her music particularly as being so classic. But, um, but it is a part of this kind of uh, popular strain of country music from the, the, the 60s, this, this Nashville sound that was kind of organized and, and put together by Chet Atkins and, and, uh, and included people like Jim Reeves and this sort of thing. Um, but um, no, I think to uh, get directly to your question, though, uh, I would say that I would go back to my initial answer about its roots uh, as being something rooted in, in class and, and, and poverty and that sort of thing. And I think that once at moments when the genre, the, the business of it at least, uh, begins reaching towards like middle class acceptability and digestibility, that's when it starts to lose its kind of uh, heart and soul, which for me is sort of like an outsider. I, I always sort of tease students when they start talking about country music that they listen to. And I, I have a hard time taking country singers who haven't been in prison seriously, because um, this is <laughs> one of the things I say to them, uh, because I do feel like there is a, uh, uh, a sense at which country music is meant, it's, it's sort of built to carry these, these angsts about life and not necessarily it's not, it shouldn't be so celebratory. And I think that's my big complaint about contemporary country music. Although frankly, I haven't listened to country radio for at least 20 years. And so I, I honestly have no kind of, um, um, ethical position to talk about it, I suppose, in person. Um, I, I did see, I, I, when I used to get cable or, you know, satellite, I would watch the Marty Stewart show, which is a great, if you get RFD TV, it's on Saturday nights. It, it's a, a great little traditionalist, um, um, half hour country show, like right out of the old Porter, Porter Wagner, um, show mold. mold. Um, uh, but Keith Urban was on there one time and he apparently has purchased Waylon Jennings old Telecaster. And, uh, and, and he was on, on the show, uh, performing, uh, I think it was I've Always Been Crazy, one of his sort of great um, kind of later era songs. And um, 
and it, it just he couldn't pull it off. He just didn't have the gravitas to pull that song off, even though he had the guitar. And so I mean, he's a great guitar player and, and a wonderful he wasn't, singer. He wasn't full to the brim with cocaine. I think was the problem. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Exactly. So you couldn't buy the fact that he hadn't always been crazy, right? And so um, anyway, but um, I know I think that when the the music. Uh, aspires towards the middle class that's when it starts to uh, lose some of what we think of as purity um and again i i know some of your listeners are uh, completely turned off by kind of marxist readings of things but in this case i think it's the only way i can think about it um, no, that's good danny you're, you're taking the crosshairs off of here <laughs> well it's not a general philosophy but i think it applies to this uh to this situation um and so um i think yeah, that that's sort of where I was going, and I don't want to talk too long about it. I'm going to push back a little bit. Um, you talk about prison, but the fact is, most of uh, most of the big country stars didn't spend a whole lot of time in prison, right? I mean, Waylon might know what it's like, but Willie Nelson never went to prison. Johnny Cash went to jail a couple of times, but he never went to prison. Certainly, he he hadn't gone to prison when he wrote what must be the most famous country prison song ever, "Folsom Prison Blues." Mm-hmm. Yes. Most of the, most of the the big hits, even for the outlaw guys, were written by other people. Even Willie Nelson had stopped writing songs by the seventies. And as far as I know, Waylon never wrote a song. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, I guess when I say prison, I, I'm sort of speaking metaphorically. I mean, I think that the subject matter there's a dangerousness to those those to that music, even if they hadn't actually served time themselves. There's something that's kind of uh, offensive to middle class values, and, and I think that. Um, that that's generally what I mean when I'm saying hadn't served time in prison. Uh, while literally not true, although I, for I think there's more cases of it being true than 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 we remember. Lefty Frizzell did some kind of horrible things, actually. Really, uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's sort of like one of the founders of the Bakersfield Sound. For those of you who, um, um, who's sort of like a predecessor of like the Merle Haggards and this. And Haggard, for example, is a famous example yeah, of something yeah, yeah, he'd yeah, done. Yeah. And so, although um, although not for the he, he it wasn't nearly as bad as he made it sound in Mama Try. I turned twenty one in prison, doing life without parole. No one could steer me right, but Mama tried. Mama tried. Mama tried to raise me. Better. Right. <laughs> he was never doing life without parole or anything like that. Obviously, he was on the record singing, right? So, um, but yeah, no, but but even if they hadn't actually like done the time they wrote about the crime is what i would say um to quote beretta um and uh and i'm trying to think of another there's another oh there was a great song sometimes i'll pass through i think i was driving through indiana nathan uh and and you'll go through these little towns where they have a quote-unquote classic country station sometimes out in in these sort of rural areas Mm -hmm. and i was driving through and uh and i was listening to this song that i'd never heard by johnny paycheck um and it was called Pardon me, I have someone to kill. And, and it's just, <laughs> <laughs> I know you'll excuse me if I say goodnight. I got the promise to fulfill. Thank you for listening. My troubles Pardon me I've got someone to kill 
it was such a brilliant song about some guy sitting in a bar telling his buddy that he's going to go kill his wife and her lover and go ahead and call the cops it won't matter we'll all be dead before they get there it's sort of like this uh really bleak view of the world and i feel like does any genre have better titles than country music (laughs) no 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 that's a brilliant brilliant title you're right but that's i mean well uh, Johnny Paycheck may have actually been in prison. He seems like the kind of guy who would have been. I don't want to, uh, you know, besmudge his name. But um, I think Randy <laughs> Travis was, of all people. Uh, yeah, he was actually. That's right. Um, and so I, I think that while if they hadn't actually served, they're dealing with a kind of uh, marginal, um, these marginal portraits of life, these kind of narratives, as Nathan talks about, from the margin. Um, and I think that that's more what I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. You certainly don't hear a lot of murder ballads on uh, on modern country radio, not that I know of. No, maybe no, you do, and I just haven't heard them. No, they're all sort of celebrations about what it is to be redneck, or like I'm right. Really you love country. drinking beer and, and, and going to church. Part of it is that that rap and hip hop have largely taken over the murder narrative. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Fair enough. And and it's interesting, Danny. You talk about you know going middle class, and I mean immediately I start thinking about you know. Uh, Johnny Cash appearing on Little House on the Prairie and, you know, Waylon Jennings being in the Big Bird movie. And, well, Waylon know, Jennings was in the Big Bird movie? You best believe he was. Well, that and is... He was the narrator for the Dukes of Hazzard. Well, yes, that. he was. Yes. The, that was his biggest uh, pop hit, wasn't it? The theme yeah. from the Duke of Hazzard. Just a good old boy Never meaning no harm Beats all you never saw Been in trouble with the law Since the day they was born uh-huh. well, And what's brilliant about that is he works it into the final verse of the song that you never hear on the show. It talks about his mother wondering why they always show his hands and not his face on TV. And so it's like it's this very kind of self-parodic moment. I love, I love uh-huh. that song. So, I, I mean, it's interesting. And, I mean, obviously no genre is immune to this. I mean, we, we only need remember Coolio on Hollywood Squares to... <laughs> get a, to see how it transcends genre but you know it's it's funny that you know pretty much any commercially produced music will get co-opted and eventually turned into souvenirs right and that's the dialectic <laughs> right it's something becomes identifiable you market it and, and try uh-huh. and squeeze the life out of it if you can right right although i mean yeah let's let's not pretend that purity is not a marketing strategy to, strategy too absolutely oh sure sure that's absolutely true and i mean and that and again that's not uh exclusive to country either right i mean you know one of the things that uh for instance you know i remember when i was in late high school or the early college and oasis was trying to make a name in rock and roll that was definitely part of their shtick you know we are returning to rock and roll you know as if rock and roll had something intelligible to which they could return or right. the uh, the garage rock explosion in the early 21st century, the Strokes and the White Stripes and the Vines yeah. and the Hives, yeah. Right, right. It's very much driven by marketing, because otherwise those bands don't have that much in common, except what they're not. Right. They don't well, have yeah, a rapper and, or a DJ. And, yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and you know, not... honestly, that that's one of those things where, you know, if you've got some, uh, I, I'm going to I'm gonna see your marks, Danny, and raise you a Teodoro Adorno, uh, <laughs> if you... <laughs> You know, if you think about these things in terms of, you know, culture industry categories, uh, you know, I mean, this is something where they're definitely selling a narrative as much as they are selling uh, any given melody or instrumentation. Right. Selling a lifestyle. Well, 
and, and so much of it is in re, is reactionary. And so, like when at the genesis of rock and roll, that was sort of a threat to country music in a lot of ways. Uh, right. Sort of the rockabilly, which is actually where Johnny Cash comes out of, is a sort of rockabilly. Well, yeah, yeah, and he he often shared a stage with Elvis. So I, yeah. you know, again, yeah. the strong distinction there breaks down if you look very close at all. Of course, Elvis yeah, has a number of country records, as does Jerry uh-huh. Lee Lewis. Jerry Lee right. Lewis. Yeah, that's I mean right. the the B side the B side to Great Balls of Fire is You Win Again, which is a country song, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and not 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 like a rock country song. I mean it is it is just straight up country. The news is out all over town that you've been seen out running around. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, my, my my motivation behind asking this question was to subvert the very notion of purity in music, which is not to say that I don't like the outlaw stuff much better than Garth Brooks. Mm-hmm. Although I think 20 years on, it's easier to look at Garth Brooks and say, well, he had some pretty good songs. Sure. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, it, it's something that, you know, as, as much as I didn't like Garth Brooks when I was in high school... If uh, Friends in Low Places comes on the radio, I will turn it up and sing along to it. <laughs> and often, it's not so much the kind of I mean, innovators themselves. Like Garth Brooks was definitely someone who innovated this bridge between pop music and country music for oh, sure. his time. Um, but it's sort of their spawn that are ridiculous. And, and so, in the, in the way that Green Day I actually kind of like is a sort of neo-punk band, their spawn are, are insufferable. And so, um, <laughs> and, and I think that that's Garth Brooks, while himself not being so awful and actually i think quite good in many ways but um what he left in his wake was uh, unforgivable (laughs) (laughs) well all this talk about purity ought to underscore the degree to which musical genres are social conventions formulations marketing conventions as danny points out uh nathan when we were preparing to do this episode you asked me to ask you about the sociological aspects of country music, so go ahead and tell us about them. What role does country music play in society at large, and what subcultures surround it? Right. Uh, listeners know that I love to do my historical contingency, Neil Postman thing. So uh, one of the things about you know the genre country as distinct from rock and roll is, as Danny already noted, uh, it's very much an artificial distinction. It's very much something uh, designed to establish a sort of consumer identity. I am a country listener. I am a rock and roll listener. Uh, if you go back to the origins of both of those genres, I mean, they are they have a common ancestor. Um, now, what's interesting about that is that, you know, the sort of big booms in country music as we know it, you know, that as we've already alluded to briefly, I mean, come uh, at interesting moments where either the technology shifts or where some other phenomenon in pop music occurs. So, you know, when you get uh, really kind of the boom in FM radio, that's about the time you start getting, you know, the big cats like, you know, Willie Nelson, Dolly Parton, Kenny Rogers. You know, when you've got all of a sudden all these FM frequencies, you can designate some of them as country music stations, and you've got to have something to fill it up. And so these artists who are, you know, talented enough in their own right also come along at a precipitous moment uh, so that their music actually becomes, you know, commercially successful on a scale that's otherwise unintelligible. 
two other moments that I want to talk about. One of them is that moment that I talked about at the outset of the episode when I was in uh, my early years of high school. Uh, the reason I think, uh, looking back and you know trying to make sense of this, uh, sort of get a larger perspective on my 15-year-old, I know everything about the world view that I had back then, uh, is that you know the early 90s were really when rap music was starting to become a mainstream phenomenon. This was the era of Yo! MTV raps, uh, when white kids like myself all of a sudden you know, started listening to Tribe Like Quest and Black Sheep and, you know, all of these New York City rap acts. And really the rise of Garth Brooks, it's certainly a function of his talent. It's certainly a function of his record label's marketing genius. It's also a function of the fact that this rise of rap was very, very threatening. So country music, to a large extent, rises up as rural and suburban people uh, start to look for a music that they can call their own over against the rise of hip-hop. Uh, the other phenomenon that I want to talk about real quick, and then I'll, I'll sort of hand it off to you guys to talk about other sort of historical, sociological phenomena surrounding it, uh, is the fascinating thing that's happened here in the last, I'll say 10 years because I don't have a real exact chronology, uh, but the fact that American Idol, which first of all, when I heard the idea for the show, I thought, oh, they're trying to redo Star Search. That'll never amount to anything, <laughs> which shows how good I am at predicting pop cultural phenomena. Uh, but uh, a few seasons in, I want to say the fourth or fifth season, uh, a young country singer actually won the thing. Uh, and from that show that, you know, seemed to be geared towards sort of, you know, mainstream dance pop vocalists, uh, a country career was born. And, you know, in the wake of that, you know, of course, now all of the teenage girls that I work with at, you know, my church uh, listen to this generation of women country vocalists, you know, who really far more so than the Dixie Chicks, you know, arise during the iTunes era uh, where people are not necessarily buying albums. They're certainly not listening to country music radio, but rather they are encountering them in these sort of bizarre multimedia Internet environments uh, like American Idol, uh, and therefore turning them into a very, very different sort of pop music phenomenon. Uh, so, I mean, th this is, you know, really a moment where uh, you have, for lack of a better word for it, I mean, social media country that is sort of dominating the scene, at least among the folks that I work with. And I mean, I think that's that's something I can't even wrap my head around yet. You know, you think of, you know, Carter Fold, and the last thing you think of is iTunes. So, I, you know, uh, that's something that I'm still trying to think my way through. Uh, what other, you know, sociological, technological sorts of things do you guys want to talk about? Danny? Well, I think Nathan hit it right on the head. I mean, I think that the, uh, the threat, it's particularly your, your discussion about the threat of uh, 90s pop, popular music forms like rap and hip-hop. Oh, sure. Um, There's almost a fear of a black planet in those days yes. no no I, and i think that 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 actually oh, that's something Lord. you can see all the way through the history of country music um you have uh, a similar thing like i was talking about with johnny cash and the rockabilly kind of strain of country music that was kind of uh, a direct predecessor to its reaction which was this much more kind of sanitized nashville sound um which produced a lot of great um, artists during that time tammy Wynette is associated with with the nashville sound um, a truly great um 
artist in her own right. One of the most amazing singers ever, I think. Um, and um, but alongside that, there's this also popular undercurrent of more traditional people like, say, Loretta Lynn, who's, I think, one of the most sort of underrated popular culture productions in American history. I think Loretta Lynn is, is, is quite amazing. And a, fa- and, and, and a fascinating entry in the history of American women. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, this and is think, a woman who got married when she was 13 and all of a sudden is writing songs about the pill and uh, yes. and beating up her husband for sleeping around oh, yeah. on her. You thought that I'd be waiting up when you came home last night. You've been out with all the boys and you ended up half tied. A liquor and love, they just don't mix these ball or me behind. And don't come home but drink up with lovers on your And the other women too. Those songs where she's beating up the other women are you know, just priceless. Yes, yeah. Since yeah, yes, that's right. Um, and so, I, like, I think that in, there is a series of reactions against other threats. But all the while, in sort of the history of country music, at least, there's always been this sort of parallel traditionalist that kind of transcends these reactions a bit uh, movements. And so, uh, and I think. In the '90s, when you're talking about the uh, the rea- the Garth Brooks reaction to hip hop and that sort of thing, like that's when you do see the rise of the alt country uh, scene, which is something that's sort of maintaining these traditions and giving us kind of a baseline to uh, to um, draw that line straight back to Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family. Right, and Danny, and I'll, and I'll go ahead and admit, I mean, part of my focus on that is my own history with it. Right, I mean, you know, those were the days when. People I went to high school had their "You wear your X, I will all wear mine" hats mm-hmm. with the Confederate flag. Yes. <laughs> so I, I mean, it, 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 it's definitely something that's part of my own atmosphere when I was in high school. That probably, honestly, probably wasn't as much part of you all's picture. No, I remember that. Yeah. I'm sorry, Michael. I cut you off. Go ahead. Oh, I, I was going to say that I, I think there's something a little disingenuous about the traditionalism of the uh, alt-country movement. I remember hearing Jeff Tweedy from Wilco. Now, this was an old interview when he was still in Uncle Tupelo talking about how Garth Brooks' favorite band is Journey, and that's a real problem for country music. And I thought, your favorite band is the Minutemen, dude. How is <laughs> how is that any closer to country than Journey? <laughs> that's interesting. Um, well, I think... Is it though? I mean, I I don't want to push back. I'm the new guy, but uh, I uh, in the way that you talked about how when country kind of steps away from its kind of three chord structure and becomes more complicated, that's when you start having trouble with it. I mean, I think that's a perfect distinction between the Minutemen and Journey, isn't it? Um, and so I think in some ways, uh, the Minutemen are sort of an entryway into. I mean, remember Uncle Tupelo sort of were year one for this alternative scene. They they did the Carter family song, No Depression in Heaven, right? Going that... where there's no depression To a better land that's free from care I'll leave this world a toil and trouble My home's in heaven, I'm going there That was for a while the name of the genre, No Depression movement or music. And so um, I think that uh, they did... Uh, if not, if they're, uh, I don't know, like individual influences did transcend uh, country music traditions, they actually made a point at going at, as a band at pointing back to those traditions. Yeah, that's true. They, they, they were but, more consciously indebted. Although, I mean, at the same time, you get um, 
that that's around the same time that like Alan Jackson gave his uh, uh, his uh, he had a singing role at the uh, Country Music Awards and he gave it up to George Jones. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I, well, though he's he's I guess part of that neo traditionalist movement you were talking about earlier. He's in the late end of it, I think. Yeah. So I mean, but he, the the the. The big stars of that era, I think, were also looking backward. Maybe, maybe not so much Garth Brooks. The other thing I was interested in is you talk about the threat of rap music, to, and, and this this forms the the new country movement of the of the nineties. Mm-hmm. And then, what's interesting to me is how they've now incorporated rap into country music. Oh Prob- goodness! Probably, <laughs> probably. You're not, start- not going to talk about accidental racist, are you? <laughs> I, I, I was going to talk about accidental racist, which is, a ter- which is a terrible song, but which is the opposite of what you were talking about earlier, right? We've we've kind of come full circle, and it all begins, I guess, with that loathsome act, uh, Big and Rich, who have a who, you know, there's a, there's a rap part in their big song. Yes, mm-hmm. um, I don't know. I think they adopted rap music at a point when it wasn't dangerous to white people anymore. Oh, right. No, absolutely. And so I I think that it it was sort of a belated thing. And I don't know. I even worse than that to me is that the kid rock sort of incarnation as a country singer. (laughs) Oh, I, 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 yeah, I'm not proud of this, Danny, but kid rock is a guilty pleasure of mine. (laughs) I find him difficult to hate. He's so affable. (laughs) And, and, And he seems to, he seems to come at his love of all those genres. Honestly, I suppose that's true. That's true. He's another industrial city guy like me, I suppose. Right. I have, I have that well, Danny, I, I've got to ask this because you and I have had conversations about how much you hate hippie music and how much I love it and <laughs> all that kind of good stuff. But uh, what what do you make of the Grateful Dead? I mean, I've heard them called a a country crossover act. Yeah, for sure. Um, I could never particularly... Certainly Friend of the Devil is a country-inflected song, if ever was there one. Yeah, I, 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 it wasn't my thing, and I, I'm not calling that. I'm not going to take a moral stand on it. It just was not, <laughs> not something that that ever appealed to me. The the kind of uh, undisciplined sort of uh, uh, sprawling nature of those songs just didn't really appeal to me. I like things that are sort of much more tight, I suppose. Okay. I guess I'm anal in that way, but, um, right. And I um, love the grateful dead. So I, you know, once again, Danny, we, we come down on opposite sides of this. (laughs) Sure. No, no. I, I, but I, along that, in that same time period, Bob Dylan did, outright country song a country albums john wesley harding i mean and and so country music in the 60s was another thing that folk music was sort of looking to for some sort of rootedness and and the grateful dead was sort of a, a specifically you know west coast um version of that that people that appreciate that kind of music more than i do um could sort of uh draw on and so no i i i don't like dislike the it's just not something that ever sort of appeal, appealed to me personally so but no I, I do think that them along with like dylan and, and uh well i mean the birds, the birds. did a sweethearts mm-hmm. of the rodeo right and so uh, it was sort of a, a major sort of source um tradition for a lot of uh quote unquote the hippie era i think mm-hmm Get 
myself to be a Philistine by saying I don't particularly like Sweetheart of the Rodeo. Ah. <laughs> Ro Roger McGuinn's vocals seem so hokey and fake. Right. Like uh, that 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 version of the Christian life is unlistenable. As far as <laughs> I like, uh, I like I'm a Pilgrim off that album, and that's about it. I like Graham Parsons. He's really the driving force behind the Birds Going Country, but I don't yes. like Roger McGuinn attempting to do it. Well, I mean, yeah, and Graham Parsons, I think, is someone that someone who likes the music that you like, the alternative country from the '90s. He was very much like in their mind when they were when they were starting that up. So, mm -hmm. wrote probably the saddest song in history, "Thousand Dollar Wedding." Was a thousand dollar wedding supposed to be held the other day? And with all the invitations sent, the young bride went away. When the groom saw. All right. Um, one of the big differences between listening to the country station and listening to the top 40 station is that you are much more likely to hear God's name invoked on the former, and, and you get a lot of Christian trappings, we might say. Danny, what can you tell us about the theology of country music? Is it worth paying attention to? Is it borderline heretical? Tell me about God and country. Uh, I would say yes and yes. I, and I think that um, going back to what Nathan said, I mean, I think the source of that is the weirdly reactionary nature of this genre, which tends to define itself against popular trends in many ways. And so in a, an increasingly secular society, uh, rural, um, suburban white people invoke the cultural trappings of, of tradition, God being one of them. And so I also think it's related to the, the issues of quality. If we want to use the word purity anymore, um, uh, which I, I agree with Michael, that that is a, a troubling sort of concept. Um, um, but issues of quality country music, I think are inseparable from this issue because there are sort of really bad invocations of Jesus. One, I, looking up, doing a little research for this, I found a particularly awful one by Bobby Bear, who's sort of like a, a mid-level star in the 60s and 70s. Um, it's called Drop Kick Me Jesus Through the Goalposts of Life. And, and it's just... Uh, speaking, of great, <laughs> speaking of great titles. Yes. It's, I've uh, actually heard that one. <laughs> it's, it's quite an amazingly awful, like, shticky song. Um, and, uh, and I think what, what makes it awful is that it's sort of certain about this kind of cultural Christianity and, and in the way that sort of, you know, uh, dysfunctional church life has that same sort of certainty and unquestioned sort of a devotion to, I think that bad religious country music, uh, follows those same trappings. And I think that, um, really good, um, religious meditations and country music are both in the form of great artists like Johnny Cash recording albums of old hymns, um, which I think are always like quite moving. I mean, these are people drawing on their own sort of memories as childhood uh, from childhood and, and, uh, and kind of giving homage to those. And I think that those are, are particularly moving, but also, and just to stick with Johnny Cash, I think that, um, um, in his late sort of American recording albums that he did in the nineties and, and probably up to, he went up to the point he died really. Um, there are all these sort of very kind of dark religious songs that are, that are both like not necessarily, uh, orthodox in their Christianity, but they're so sincere and they're so full of 
there's these kind of like human moments of man just screaming out to God. And I can't help but wonder where I'm bound, where I'm bound. Can't help but wonder where I'm bound. I've been wandering through this land, just doing the best I can, trying to find what I was meant to do. And the people that I see look as worried as can be, and it looks like they are wondering too. And I think that even if where it's un- incorrect, um, it's actually more true um, than many of these sort of hokey um, country religious songs. So I do think that it's worth talking about, and I, and I think that it goes hand in hand with countries with qual- what I'll call quality country music then, if not pure country music, uh, it's marginal. It's purposefully marginal position um, that is not celebrating being a redneck, but sort of a lamenting its like outsider position. Um, and I think that its religious position that it, that it claims in these moments can be really super powerful. And so I, I particularly get a lot of um, like inspiration and, and, uh, and comfort out of those late Johnny Cash songs. You you really do take a Lionel Trilling approach to country music, don't you? Between is, <laughs> between is the only honest place to be. Yes, <laughs> I am. I am guilty. I apologize. No, 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 no. There's no re- there's no need to apologize for uh, Lionel Trilling on this podcast. At least not uh, not, not as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Nathan, you're the closest thing we have to a theologian. Does uh, does 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 uh, country music religion trouble you? Well, it's interesting. I, I honestly don't have a whole lot of contact with this. I mean, you know, uh, when I when I read the show notes, you know, the that terrible, and I'm I'm probably going to alienate some listeners with this, but what else is new? That terrible, you know, Garth Brooks song about sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers uh, that get got played at every wedding in the late nineties. Uh, <laughs> This is what I'm talking about, yes. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, that's the sort of thing I was thinking about. I I hadn't even thought, Danny, about the sort of existential Christianity that does come across in some of it. I do think it's interesting as a cultural phenomenon, Michael, that, you know, in country you don't have to apologize for invoking God. Uh, and, you know, because when I first read this, I thought, well, of course there are, you know, rock acts and, you know, uh, hip-hop acts that invoke God, but usually they get clobbered for it, whereas in country you get rewarded for it. Uh, Hip-hop, you know, I would say, is actually the other place where you can talk about God. Right, although, you know, I, you know, famously, you know, Kanye West has a track about, you know, narrating his initial attempts to have, you know, raps about Jesus and God, uh, you know, his single Jesus Walks, you know. Uh, so here goes my single, Radio Needs This. They, they say you can rap about anything but Jesus. Uh, you know, so he's sort of lamenting the, uh, the very resistance to that sort of thing in his own genre. Now I'm not defending Kanye West as an artist, a person or in any other way. Uh, but it is a phenomenon that, you know, occurs there. I also think of something like, and, you know, again, I'm going to reveal my, my nineties roots here, but, you know, Tennessee by arrested development is definitely someplace where that happened in, you know, more of a hip hop arena. But again, they didn't go anywhere after that. Whereas, you know, in country, it's definitely something that, you know, uh, has its rewards. Um, so one of the things about, you know, specifically, you know, country invocations of God is, you know, like Danny mentioned, 
uh, it tends to be that sort of very individualistic piety. Absolutely. Um, you know, as opposed to uh, a sort of, and I, yeah, I, I hesitate to call it this, but a more political piety like you would find in something like a Curtis Mayfield song uh, or something like that where, you know, God is standing in judgment over some phenomenon, you know. You don't get a uh, lot of if, judgment. Uh, no, if you, <laughs> if you run into Jesus in a country song, it'll be Buddy Christ from Dogma. Like, uh, what's the yeah. uh, the Josh Turner song, Me and God? Do you guys know that one? No, I don't. I don't. I don't. We're, we're like two peas in a pod, me and God. <laughs> which, uh, like, I, I cannot imagine having the... Oh, I, I can't use the word I was going to use. Uh, the guts, let's say, to sing that song. <laughs> the temerity, the temerity. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that, is, uh, that is very close to heresy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it, it, yeah it's claiming divinity, isn't it? Yeah. So, um, um, vegetable divinity. Um, and I think <laughs> also, Nathan, I don't want to interrupt you, but uh, this kind of religiosity and sort of bad country music also goes hand in hand with patriotism uh, all too often. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. And you know, that, that, that's, you know, another interesting, and again, my bile is rising again. Uh, you know, Michael sometimes notes that if we are the four humors on this uh, podcast, I am caller. Uh, but you know, uh, this is the sort of thing that, you know, made country such a, Oh, such a nice hand-in-glove fit with the Bush administration, especially in the lead-up to and the years immediately after the Iraq War. Uh, you there you know, when the I mean, world stopped turning, Nathan? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> hey, you've got to stand for something or you'll fall for anything. <laughs> we'll put a boot in your... <laughs> it's the American way. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, again, that's something... And by that time, honestly... I'd been living in East Tennessee enough that I'd kind of mellowed on it. Uh, if that had happened, you know, in 1994 instead of 2001, you know, I mean, it, it probably would have, you know, completely turned me against country for all, my entire lifetime. Well, I uh, see we are rapidly running out of time. So let's end on a positive note with some recommendations. What country music, album, artist, subgenre, whatever, uh, would you recommend to our listeners? Nathan, let's start with you. Yeah, some of the country that I really enjoyed here in the last few years is uh, late career uh, Johnny Cash, uh, especially when, and I'm going to get his name wrong, Rick Rubens, is that the producer? Ruben, mm -hmm. no best. Ruben, okay, yeah, and yeah, uh, Rubens is Pee Wee Herman, yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> Rick Rubin uh, produced a number of albums for him. It is, you know, very minimalist. It's sort of Johnny Cash and a guitar, and that's all you need. Uh, and it's really riveting music. Uh, you know, famously, he did, you know, some covers of, you know, people as diverse as Soundgarden and Nine Inch Nails in there. Uh, but it's just really, really good music. So I definitely recommend late career Johnny Cash for your listening pleasure. Too cold to start a fire. I'm burning diesel, burning dinosaur bones. I'll take the river down to Stillwater and ride a pack of dogs. I'm gonna break, I'm gonna break my, gonna break my rusty cage and run. I'm gonna break, I'm gonna break my, gonna break my rusty cage. Danny. And run. 
Um, I am currently sort of infatuated with this album called Southeastern by uh, a guy named Jason Isbell. And uh, he's uh, he came out of a band called the Drive-By Truckers, which are sort of a, a, a country rock, alt-country sort of um, hybrid band from local here in Athens, Georgia. Um, although Isbell himself is from Alabama. But um, this album is, I think, really remarkable in in its its kind of a post-sobriety album. Um, this is his sort of first uh, clean record that he's done. Um, not not that the content is particularly clean. It's in many ways very disturbing. No, indeed. But, the, <laughs> but, but it's uh, at the same time extremely kind of uplifting. And, and it's like Nathan is talking about with the late Johnny Cash albums. This one is much more pared back. Um, he has this band called the 400 Unit that has some the role in this album, but many of the songs are, are quiet and, and just sort of meditative and incredibly powerful. And if you're interested in sort of poetic uh, songwriting, you will find a lot to like be interested in this album. And, and I, uh, I found myself for about two months straight listening to almost nothing but this album. And, uh, and it's, uh, it's, I, to me, it's almost like historically good. So I, I would uh, recommend Southeastern by Jason Isbell. His voice is just so good. Yes, it's it's high and sort of gravelly and raspy. High and he and sort of cap- Yes, exactly, exactly. And he sort of captures in his voice and along with the songwriting uh, this sort of isolation and, and kind of desperation that I think associates it with the kind of traditions of country music. On a lark, on a whim. I said there's two kinds of men in this world and you're neither of them And his fist cut the smoke I had an eighth of a second to wonder if he got the joke And in the car headed home Asked if I had considered the prospect of living alone with a stay. Well, I want to point to the member of the Highwaymen that doesn't get as much uh, play as uh, Cash Nelson and uh, Jennings, which is Chris Christopherson. Who has really an amazing? That's the guy from Blade. That is the guy from Blade. <laughs> the guy with eye, without eyebrows from Blade. <laughs> you know, he doesn't have eyebrows. Look at him. Anyway, um, he has an amazing story, which is that he uh, he was a Rhodes Scholar, mm-hmm. who, who uh, has a master's degree in English and was teaching at West Point, and gave it all up to work as a janitor at a national recording studio. And uh, and he wrote, uh, you know, he's he's written at least twenty songs that uh, that I love as much as I love any song ever. And uh, I, I, you know, he he gets a lot of flack for not being able to sing, but he his voice works well with his songs as far as I'm concerned. And so, I uh, I think it's time for people to rediscover him as a songwriter, and try to forget about his movie career. Waking in the morning to the feeling of her fingers on my skin Wiping out the traces of the people and the places that I've been Just 
teaching me that yesterday was something that I never thought of trying. Oh, Blade is awesome, though. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, Side note. <laughs> um, th- that's our show for today. I'm sure we left out a lot. I'm sure we've alienated our some of our listeners. If uh, if that's the case, send us an email at thechristianhumanist at gmail dot com. Our uh, website is christianhumanist.org Nathan what's on tap for next week well next week I'm going to tee you guys up and let you go to town we're going to be talking about Jewish American novels see see how much we do to make you feel welcome Danny (laughs) I am in awe of your generosity right now it's true and also I feel pressure I really feel like I I should probably study up on this now anyway until then uh, this is Michael Farmer for Nathan Gilmore for Danny Anderson for the absent David Grubbs saying let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger when my mind is all flutter from living day to day your music's like the river i can gently float away when i'm deep in disappointment and i cannot face the night Music picks me up and takes me closer to the light Mother country music, let your sad songs roll You nurtured me in childhood, you're ailing for my soul Mother country music, let the guitars roll on There's a refuge from our trouble In your song 